bubonic plague was first recorded in the 6th century when what we today call the Plague of Justinian tore through the Mediterranean, Europe, and what we would today call the Middle East, including the capital of what was then the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople, which was where this particular run of this plague gets its name. Justinian was the Byzantine Empire at the time, and the Plague of Justinian lasted at its height from the 6th into the 7th century though it also continued to re-emerge periodically into the mid-8th century. This plague is thought to have been one of the deadliest in history, killing an estimated 15 to 100 million people over the course of those two primary centuries, which added up, at the time, to somewhere between a fourth to over one-half of the population of this European and Middle Eastern region. Though the numbers are somewhat controversial, as there's a chance that what we know about this first bubonic plague-based pandemic is exaggerated because of the shock of how bad it was compared to what came before, but when compared to what came later, it actually maybe wasn't quite as bad in that larger context. The third bubonic plague pandemic was far more recent. It started in China in 1855, and though the majority of deaths were in Asia, with about 10 million people killed in India and somewhere between 2 and 5 million in China, this pandemic was a worldwide thing, and the World Health Organization didn't declare it officially over until 1960, at which point deaths from the bubonic plague, supposedly stemming from that original mid-19th century origin point, finally dropped to a mere 200 deaths per year. The Great Plague of London was an extension of a larger, far more chronologically expansive bubonic plague pandemic, the second bubonic plague pandemic. So it came after the Plague of Justinian and before that more recent one that originated in China. And this second plague began in the early 14th century, maybe as early as 1321, possibly in the Central Asian steppes, roughly modern-day Kazakhstan, but maybe as far west as China. But wherever it started, slowly building up steam, it exploded in scale in the mid-14th century, around 1346, likely expanding via maritime trade routes from the Black Sea into the Mediterranean, traveling from the Byzantine and Ottoman empires around to Western Europe, down to North Africa, and southeastward into modern-day Syria, Iraq, and eventually over towards Southeast Asia, even as the westward-moving wing of the infection headed further up toward Britain and eventually Norway and Sweden from there progressing southward to infect modern-day northern France, Germany, Poland, and western Russia. This second bubonic plague pandemic, later called the Black Death, for the black spots and gangrenous, rotting flesh, toes, and fingers that would often accompany it, and because of the Swedish, Danish, and Icelandic association of darkness and night with death, was often contemporaneously called the pestilence, the great death, the mortality, or the plague. And if those names don't make it clear, this was a very deadly pandemic, 
It's tricky to say anything for certain about this time period because of how much information was lost and because of how much information simply wasn't considered to be worth writing down in any long-lasting archival fashion. But what we do know with decent certainty is that this was probably the most deadly pandemic in recorded human history. It probably killed somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 to 200 million people between 1347 and 1351 alone. And after that main intense pandemic hump, it persisted, depending on where you choose to draw the end date line, until either the final days of the 18th century or sometime in the second quarter of the 19th century. So it lasted from the early 1300s until either around 1800, or the first half of the 1800s. It was not crazily devastating throughout that entire 400 to 500 year-ish period, but for a year to as much as a decade at a time, at a regular cadence throughout this period, some region ranging from a city to a continent would fall back into pandemic mode with huge swaths of the population dying pretty horrible and gruesome deaths, causing end-of-days-style fears to re-emerge, because that's what it probably felt like. They didn't have any real sense of what was causing this. Medical science at the time not being great, and modern germ theory not primed to become commonly accepted until the 1850s, well after this particular pandemic was finally, officially, over. In the latter years of this crazy, long pandemic, the Great Plague of London struck, and over the course of 18 months, a year and a half, lasting from 1665 until 1666, around 100,000 people, which was about a quarter of the city's population at the time, died of the bubonic plague. This was not an unfamiliar disease for the city. They had outbreaks in which tens of thousands of people died every few decades. But this outbreak was particularly notable, in part because it was the big, final, devastating wave for this strand of this particular pandemic, but also because the city had grown incredibly rapidly in the preceding years in terms of population and infrastructure and wealth. So it was likely a consequence of the growing pains the city was experiencing that this particular outbreak was so horrible and massive compared to the other recent outbreaks they had seen. An author named Daniel Defoe, probably best known today for his book Robinson Crusoe, but who, when he was alive, was also fairly well known as a pamphleteer, distributing short bits of published work related to social issues primarily. And he published a book in 1722 entitled A Journal of the Plague Year. This book was written as if it were a contemporaneous account of someone who had lived through the worst of the Great Plague of London, which again struck in 1665 and lasted until 1666. So this book was published nearly 60 years later, and the author was only five years old when the events in question took place. But he published it using the initials H.F., possibly meant to be his uncle's initials, a man who had been an adult when the plague had struck and who had told his nephew stories from that time. But Defoe also went to great lengths to make the story seem real, with realistic descriptions and small details of the day-to-day -day reality at the time, including rumors and scandals and individual deaths 
and notable announcements. Despite all that effort, though, a journal of the plague year is still considered to be fiction, as it doesn't ever reach the level of narrative journalism or even just imaginative nonfiction to be considered something other than literature. It captures a sense of the era, almost certainly, but it doesn't describe reality in the way a true journalistic contemporaneous document would. There is another document, though, that was actually written by someone in the moment as the pandemic was occurring, and by someone who was in a position to understand what was happening and the context of those events, more so than the average person, at least. Samuel Pepys, P-E-P-Y-S, was a member of British Parliament, an administrator for the Navy, and thankfully a diligent scribbler and documentarian. Specifically, he kept a personal diary from 1660 until 1669, and the diary entries were published in the 19th century, making these works written as personal documents by someone in the know during a period in which major military conflicts, the Great Fire of London, and the Great Plague of London took place. Some of the most compelling and historically vital first-hand accounts of this era. Today, we might call Pepys a life logger. He wrote about his personal finances, documented the time he got up each morning, noted details about his love life, social gossips and events, his professional concerns and considerations. He was prolific as well, writing more than a million words over the course of this period, providing today's historians a great deal of period-specific flavor, but also minute, exacting figures about all sorts of things in Restoration-era England. And notably, he didn't ever intend for his contemporaries to see these works, but he did intend for these works to serve as a whimsy-laden historical document. So portions of them are in code or intentionally written in other languages to keep those who might snoop from figuring out what he was documenting. But they were produced in such a way that future generations would be able to benefit from this data and these accounts, if they so desired. The contrast of a journal of the plague year and Samuel Pepys' diary is fascinating, because the former is written as a complete work, intended for contemporary public consumption, and offers a compelling look at what seems to be real life, but which is of dubious value for modern historians. It's difficult to disentangle researched fact from imagined fiction, and much of the book is known to have been fabricated based on what the author thought he knew about that prior period, or in some cases based on what he thought would be better for the story. The diaries, on the other hand, are more difficult to access, understand, and frankly care about. They're certainly interesting if you're a history buff studying this era, but beyond that, who really cares what time a random bureaucrat woke up each morning for nearly a decade. That said, the information we've been able to glean from these diaries, especially in terms of comparing and contrasting them with information derived from other sources, has made them incredibly valuable and beloved by people who have worked to more clearly understand what happened during this pivotal moment in time at this fairly central location. What I'd like to talk about today is our own plague year with an update about what's been happening around the world, some of the big issues we face at this moment, and what might happen 
next. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Washington Post, and it's entitled Sorrow and Stamina, Defiance and Despair. It's been a year. This is one of many pieces that were published in the past few weeks, looking at the prior year, which has somewhat loose beginning and end dates depending on the measurements you choose to use. But whichever date you choose to use, these pieces are looking at this year through a variety of lenses, using many different techniques, from timelines to photo galleries to often quite raw, in-situ, contemporaneous writings by people who experienced some of the most devastating moments of the COVID-19 pandemic firsthand. I've done several episodes on various aspects of COVID over the past year, the most recent of which I actually thought was more recent, but it turns out it was in November of 2020. It's now mid-March of 2021, and it simultaneously feels like it's been an eternity and just a few weeks since I produced that episode. That kind of subjective time compression and extension is apparently common when going through something unusual, something that requires a person to soak up a great deal of data from their environment for survival purposes, and when there are just so many unknowns swirling around us at any given moment. And I would argue that whether we've, as individuals, been through something staggering and horrible or simply had our lives tweaked and shifted or utterly upended in some less devastating but still disorienting way. Unknowns are absolutely the order of the day, and I think we can all be forgiven for being a bit out of sorts right now as we reach this strange anniversary of something that none of us asked for, few of us understood right away, or perhaps still understand now, and all of us would probably like to see end sooner rather than later, even if end, in this case, doesn't so much mean a return to our previous normal as it means establishing some new, hopefully less dangerous and more predictable, normal. As of the day I'm recording this, there have been around 120 million documented COVID-19 infections worldwide and nearly 2.7 million deaths. That means around 15,500 infections per million people worldwide, and more will no doubt be infected before we get this thing under control, whatever control ends up meaning in practice. Also, as of the day I'm recording this, Brazil has the highest number of average cases per capita. The U.S. is still in first place in terms of raw numbers for both cases and deaths, but the rate of new infections has been dropping fairly precipitously over the past few weeks in many countries, and the main growth spots right now are Brazil, some parts of Europe, and a few countries located primarily in the western portion of the Middle East. These numbers will almost certainly change, possibly significantly, by the time this episode goes live, but what I'd like to focus on today are some bigger picture issues that are coming into clearer focus as we move past this new global pandemic milestone, and as some countries begin to carve out what would seem to be potential paths to that maybe normalcy that many of us are looking forward to, while other countries and the people in those countries 
suffer under bad political and economic decisions, the consequences of existing inequalities, and how resources, including vaccines, are distributed, and, in many cases, suffer under the results of pure dumb luck. In particular, I'd like to look at issues related to vaccine diplomacy, political and ideological instability, and the consequences of the lockdowns that have been imposed across most of the world at some point over the course of the past year. Vaccine diplomacy is a concept derived from other types of resource-based diplomacy, and in the context of COVID, it basically means that some countries, particularly those that have invested in the creation of their own local COVID vaccine, and which are able to manufacture vaccine doses locally, are using shipments of those doses for diplomatic purposes. This has meant, for instance, China sending shipments of their locally made vaccines to countries throughout South America, which has resulted in positive press for China and their medical industry efforts, but also demonstrated a beneficial contrast between what they are doing and what the United States has done for the region, which, in terms of COVID vaccines at least, has not been much of anything. The U.S.'s position at the moment seems to be making sure everyone at home who wants a vaccine has one first, before sending supplies elsewhere, at which point it will ostensibly begin its own vaccine diplomacy efforts in earnest. In the meantime, though, China, but also Russia, India, and the European Union, have been able to achieve these sorts of goodwill-based gains, and often with very little investment on their part. China's shipments to South America, at times, only contain thousands of vaccine doses, each of which require two shots to grant their full benefits. So a lot of these shipments right now are gestures, not quantities of vaccine that any given country would be able to use as a foundational part of their immunity regimen. These gestures are largely symbolic, but still meaningful in that symbolism. We are also seeing, as part of these larger diplomatic strategies, efforts to undermine vaccines being produced in other countries. Russia, in particular, based on research conducted by disinformation monitoring services run by other governments and by third-party external organizations, seems to be very keen to cast doubt on the effectiveness and safety of American-developed vaccines in particular, likely with the intention of making folks in the U.S., but also elsewhere, where the vaccines might eventually be shipped, fear these vaccine types, so that the U.S. looks bad in the eyes of the world, and so that Russia might then have more openings into which they can place their own vaccines, creating opportunities for economic growth, the opportunity to sell vaccines to these markets in the future, but also for more vaccine diplomacy while also casting a shadow over the efforts and potential future efforts of their primary diplomatic rivals. In the midst of those great game-style power struggles, we're also seeing quite a few coups, uprisings, usurpations, attempted usurpations, power realignments, and other types of general upset to the quote-unquote world order as we knew it, before the pandemic emerged and catalyzed so much change of so many types. It's not unusual to see realignments of power structures during and in the wake of 
natural disasters, wars, pandemics, and other such discombobulating variables. These out-of-context problems cause people to see things in new ways, question their priorities, their beliefs, their sense of security, and other things of that nature. But they also weaken existing power structures, sometimes literally, in the sense that militaries, public services, economies, and other systems that allow for the perpetuation of a given structure can be weakened by a physical conflict or widespread disease or weather-related disaster, but also figuratively, in that people no longer, at times, perceive those in charge to be the powerful, protective force that they once thought them to be. As such, outside forces might try their luck. Inside rabble-rousers might decide that it is time to make their move, and political factions that once seemed like outsiders, with no chance of achieving much of anything, may seem like valid options. The world has been upended, after all. So why shouldn't we try some new things, some new faces and ideas, now that we can't help but notice all of those previously overlooked perspectives and weaknesses in the existing status quo? In part because of this, and in part because of existing variables that already had the world in flux, ranging from political movements to technological developments to social changes that have slowly worked their way outward across the expanse of global culture, we've already witnessed an unusually high number of government overthrows and overthrow attempts this past year, alongside shocking political defeats, the rise of ideologies, both political and philosophical, that would seem to defy previous dogmas about how the world works, I'm thinking especially of economic theories here, like the surprising popularity of modern monetary theory as a serious philosophical contender after decades of languishing on the credibility backbenches, and recalibrated ideas about which professions are cool, what life paths are meaningful, and how we might structure things socially, economically, philosophically to make the next few decades truly productive safe, and overall worthwhile. And finally, there are some very valid questions being asked about the approach we took with this pandemic and how we might do things better in the future in terms of health outcomes and in terms of economic outcomes. How might we keep people safe without also collapsing the global economy? Increasingly, because of how the world is set up and interconnected, collapsing even a portion of the global economy can send shockwaves throughout the rest of the world's economic fortunes. So getting this right in both regards, because pandemics also don't respect borders or geographic distance, is fairly important. Right now, different approaches to dealing with this pandemic are heavily politicized in some countries. Here in the U.S., for instance, Not wearing a mask is still a virtue-signaling ritual for many people who are more conservatively aligned, while folks who lean to the left tend to be more aggressive in their support for universal shutdowns, even when shutdowns might not be the optimal solution. Though, of course, there is a spectrum for all such beliefs and practices. These politically polarized pandemic postures, though, have made clear conversations about the data that we've collected related to both health and economic issues, incredibly scarce and sparse and controversial. What we seem to know at the moment is that for this particular disease, it absolutely makes sense to wear masks in public. 
and the best-fitted, most water-droplet-blocking mask possible, and to not get too close to other people, especially in indoor-confined spaces, without solid ventilation systems. These measures work because of how this particular disease is transmitted. These approaches are not perfect, but they are a lowest common denominator, cheapest solution for societies that want to continue to function to some degree, but also want to introduce habits and requirements that will prevent a lot of transmission opportunities with the fewest number of sacrifices. It's low-hanging fruit, basically, and easy for almost everyone to achieve, at least most of the time, unless they are actively avoiding doing so because of tribal spokespeople who have told them that making these sorts of changes represents some kind of oppression or weakness, which is a fairly silly idea, but then so are a lot of tribally enforced norms for all sorts of cultural tribes. Shutdowns are less of a slam dunk in that they are seemingly very effective and important in some contexts, especially for big, mostly entertainment-focused events that are culturally important, but technically a lot less necessary for the basic functioning of society than some other group-related activities. But the same measures are arguably less of a success story in other contexts. Simply shutting down everything is an often appealing solution but not necessarily the best by all possible measures, in all circumstances. Schools, for instance, once they have proper ventilation and spacing and cleaning routines in place, seem to be fairly safe as in-person activities go. Not all schools can easily implement such changes for various reasons, and not all teachers, understandably, are keen to get back to work in circumstances in which they will be put at more risk for what at times seems like purely political purposes. But the data that we have now, a year after the pandemic started, seem to indicate that, especially if we vaccinate teachers, allowing younger students in particular, mid-teens and younger, to go back to schools that have been properly prepared, this is an aspect of our normally functioning societies that we could probably reintroduce without substantially increasing the risk of infecting anyone. Some businesses, too, could almost certainly return to something like their normal function, and indeed, some already have. But many of the broad, all-encompassing shutdowns early on in the pandemic probably caused more harm to those running the businesses and those who rely on their goods and services than they returned to society in terms of health safety. Now, I personally think it made a lot of sense to, out of an abundance of caution during a period of massive-scale unknowns, shut down pretty much everything for a while in the pandemic's early days. But I also believe this abundance of caution came with a lot of costs that in the future, with the next pandemic that requires shutdowns, we probably shouldn't have to pay, at least not at the same scale. There are good arguments that this approach that we took was a flawed one, and the relatively small health risks would have been worthwhile if it would have allowed us to not crush entire industries just in case. I would still contend that we didn't know enough back in the early days of this pandemic to make that kind of judgment with the necessary level of certainty, and that we can only really say this with data-backed confidence now, a year later. But there are good arguments to be made that leaders could have come down on this in a different way and had similar health outcomes 
but better economic outcomes than we had. And some places around the world did exactly that. The U.S. state of Florida, for instance, took an approach that saw fewer businesses shut down, but managed to achieve similar health outcomes to those that were seen in the U.S. state of California, which shut down basically everything for a while. There's plenty that we still don't know about why this is the case, and it could be that the examples we are using to make these sorts of comparisons are tainted by other variables like climate, the behaviors of locals, or just pure luck and happenstance. It's worth keeping an open mind about these sorts of things, though, because despite the ideological slant many of these approaches have attained over the past year, there's a good chance that all political stripes involved in these debates will have been wrong about something, and right about something, and it behooves us to approach the data in an unbiased way, so that we can make better plans based on what actually happened, rather than creating manuals for the next pandemic based primarily on political expediency. We are also, at a moment, hopefully a short moment, but it could very well drag on for years based on current plans and estimates, in which part of the population is vaccinated and part of the population is not, and thus reopening plans are hobbled and complicated by a lack of clarity and a fundamental disparity in terms of safety levels for those who are vaccinated and those who are not. There are, and will be for some time, some people who are safer than others in terms of COVID exposure for themselves and for others. That means some people can probably safely go back to a lot of normal activities, while other people are both themselves a lot more vulnerable and have the capacity to make those around them more vulnerable by spreading the disease. This is a tricky business. Because in a purely scientific, purely rational, non-political world, we'd just open stuff up and people who were vaccinated could start helping the economy get back on its feet by living a more conventional existence, while those who are not yet vaccinated would adhere to stricter rules until they're able to get their shots and then wait the few weeks required for the immunization to take full effect. We do not live in that world, though. And as a consequence, we are seeing a variety of approaches to this new class-like division, with some countries rolling out vaccine passports, which allows bearers, those who have been vaccinated and have achieved some level of immunity, additional social privileges, while those without such passports must remain under a stricter type of lockdown. This is an issue because much of the world, over the past century in particular, has been trying to eliminate class divisions of this kind, attempting to grant everyone the same rights, the same opportunities, access to the same resources, whenever possible. That's the ambition, at least. Breaking down these types of walls between perceived classes has arguably been one of the most important evolutions of the modern age and will hopefully continue apace in the coming years. This situation is difficult, though, because equality in this sense would mean those who no longer face the same risks because of their vaccinated status may be forced to remain in stricter lockdown with their more vulnerable peers, despite their potential to live a more normal lifestyle and help the economy as they do so. 
Now, one alternative is that we would open up society for everyone, even those who are more vulnerable, risking a lot more infection and death and potentially resurgences as well in the trade-off. Because the more infections we have, the more potential for mutations. And at some point, if infection numbers stay high, there's a chance that a mutant COVID could emerge that would be able to infect even those with vaccines, which would start this whole shutdown process all over again from the beginning, which is not something that most of us would prefer, even if this would allow us to open things back up in an arguably more equitable fashion. There's no straightforward way of approaching this then, because no matter what you do, opening everything up, keeping everyone locked down, or allowing some people who are vaccinated additional rights and privileges that those who are not yet vaccinated do not get, no matter what you do, someone will be left in the lurch. Someone will be pissed off, perhaps rightfully so, and or someone will be made more vulnerable than is necessary or prudent. Again, the period in which we need to worry about this sort of conflict will hopefully be short. It's likely, based on today's estimates, that much of the world won't have access to a sufficient number of vaccines until late in 2023. But we've been able to surpass a lot of estimates already, and especially if this remains a focus politically and economically, there's a chance we could hit that mark in early 2023 or even late 2022 instead. So fingers crossed on that, but in the meantime, expect to see a lot of controversy, rightly, I would argue, over these vaccine passports and the larger issue that they represent. We will also probably see quite a lot of abuses of these systems, as would seem to be the case already in Russia, where counterfeit vaccine passports are apparently already being produced and sold to those who have not yet been vaccinated but who want to attain the greater number of rights that are slowly becoming available to those who have in the area. One last point that I'd like to make is that there's good evidence emerging. Alongside all of the anecdotal evidence many of us have already collected over the past year or so, that persistent threats like pandemics and shutdowns, like those that we've experienced off and on at various levels of strictness over the course of the past year, can do a lot of psychological and physical damage to those who suffer under them. People who face persistent threats over long periods of time are more likely to develop symptoms of anxiety, of depression, and exhaustion. At some point, our biological warning systems can become so revved up that we develop reflexes that, while potentially useful, if we're running from tigers and other predators all day, can also be super harmful and deleterious if they remain flipped on all day every day. They can wear out our bodies and our minds and are probably not necessary in the modern world in which there are far fewer tiger-like threats that we have to face. At the same time, a lack of human contact, a significant deviation from familiar faces and habits and spaces, and a lack of fundamental types of connections that we typically experience in social spaces with other human beings can all lead to and amplify these same sorts of issues. In short, many of us are already coping with the consequences of these stresses, maybe psychologically, maybe physically, and maybe both. And those of us who are not, yet, very well may in the coming months and years.
there's a good chance then that the health consequences of this pandemic will not remain relegated to the coronavirus-derived disease vector and will explode outward to encompass a great many facets of our lives. And it's good to be aware of that, both so we can accurately assess what ails us and do what we can to ameliorate and face these sorts of issues rather than ignoring or setting them aside as not being real or worth our time, but also so that we can hopefully build bulwarks against such issues into our future plans. We want to be able to deal with the whole range of dangers we face, in other words. And that means not just the disease and not just the economic consequences of the disease, but also the consequences of our personal and social responses to the disease and to the shutdown. Something that's a lot more difficult to quantify, but vital to understand if we're going to become more resilient as individuals and as groups of individuals. The service I'd like to recommend today is one that I discovered relatively recently, but have truly been enjoying in the time I've known about it. It's called Mouse Book Club, and it is a business. It costs, I want to say, $15 a quarter, but each quarter they curate a selection of books to send out to their subscribers. And these books are often, maybe always, books that are in the public domain. So you could technically get them and read them somewhere else on Project Gutenberg, something like that. But they take these books that they've curated, these very short works, typically between something like 30 and 100 pages, maybe, novelletta and novella territory, and they design them in such a way that they are incredibly readable and incredibly shareable. In fact, one of my favorite things about this is, one, the form factor, which I believe is something like three and a half by five and a half inches, so they're about the size of a smartphone, which makes them a great replacement if you find yourself reaching for your phone anytime you get bored. Keep one of these things in your pocket instead, and you'll read a piece of classic literature or nonfiction work instead. But it also makes them great for sharing. And in my experience, at least, as soon as I finish one of these books, I am immediately compelled to hand them off to someone else because they are adorable and pocketable and beautiful. And, of course, they contain something very interesting and meaningful quite often. There is a collection of other services attached to this as well. They do a podcast. I believe they do book club discussions. I haven't tried any of those yet, but I'm sure they're great. The thoughtfulness with which they put together these books makes me feel pretty confident that the other things they do will also be quite intentional and focused on providing value to the folks who are subscribed. But you can check out more of what they are about. I believe they are just at mousebookclub.com. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider checking them out. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can find my daily news-focused newsletter at yesterdaysnewsletter.com. And you can feel free to say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram, and just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, 
and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.